of your eye, huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. Finish the special yes. crossover. Big crossover with a guest speaker, everything. And I keep wanting to say Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes. I'm like, but no, that's movie review scores, not the movie. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> or what they were actually throwing on windshields when they were filming yes. it. So it's an it's a different episode. We're doing it as a bonus. And so this is like the first half. We're going to do our normal type of stuff. But the second half where we talk about the movie has Jeff Strandon who did the novelization of the movie. So it's a bit of talk about behind the scenes stuff. And with the book, it's a little different than our normal type of thing. Watch everyone's going to love that. And we're going to go, oh, huh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we should have been doing this all along. With all the, actually, jokingly, I was going to say with all the horror novelizations, but we've done a whole lot of movies based on books. And I've really found a lot of the, and I don't know how true it is, but a lot of the small movie directors that we do, the ind independent guys, a lot of times they're like, oh no, call me up. You can talk to me anytime. Now, none of that actually. <laughs> Some of the ones that we've done, though, we're about to do a movie with Ben Wheatley. When he made the movie we're talking about, he was no one. And now he's pretty established. I don't know that he's actually going to want to talk to us. We could talk to the guy that did Martyrs. I was sitting in my chair with my bunny slippers on, and it just came to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that might be actually a little more terrifying than the movie itself, trying to figure out how they came up with the idea. <laughs> He'd probably be one of those, like, and I'm just totally stereotype off the cuff, but he's like probably really quiet and stuff. It is the horror. It's the cop movie stereotype of the killer or something. It's one of those things. Like I illustrated an entire children's book, watching nothing but horror movies back to back while I painted. I know people that write romance novels, listening to heavy metal. So. Hey, there's always a good time to listen to heavy metal. Yeah. Especially if you have to go through a romance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So attack of the rotten killer horror lasagna tomatoes there you go that's what makes the lasagna horror it's the rotten tomatoes in it. yes the tomatoes will kill you all right so what do we got on this movie because this one's fairly known and popular just because of the cult following and it shows up quite often it seems i think actually if you spoke to 99 percent of the people they will say they've heard of it and 96 percent of the people have never seen it exactly it's a trope like the toxic Avenger. Yes. People have heard of it. No one's ever actually hey, watched it. We saw that when it came out on video, man. Yes, we did. <laughs> it might surprise you that this was a U.S. film from 1978. This was an American film. It was really the brainchild of four different guys. Costa Dillon or three guys. Costa Dillon was the one who came up with the concept and he wrote it along with a gentleman named Stephen Peace and another guy named John DeBello. And in fact, the three of them became super invested in the whole franchise. And if you look at things that they've done after this, if it's not Killer Tomatoes, they haven't done it. 
because this is their niche. This is what they've done. And surprisingly, it had a sequel and a cartoon and now a novelization. It just took a couple decades. <laughs> oh, it had two sequels. Oh, two sequels. I only knew there was one. Okay, I'm behind. So the concept came when they were watching a movie together. And it's one of those innate sub-level kind of racism things that happens because they were watching Japanese B-films. Okay. All right, B-rated Japanese movies. And the one that they actually show on screen is called Matango from 1963. It's also known as Attack of the Mushroom People. (laughs) And it's very cheaply made. The graphics aren't great. The plot is can seem to be wavering in this film. And they were sitting around and it's not, I won't say I haven't done, I did this with comic books. They were sitting around going, we could do this. <laughs> this is something we could do. And so they did. Now, now the part that I think is subtly racist about it is that here is this Western culture trio sitting around watching an East Asian film pulled out of its environment and saying, this is garbage. We could do this. Maybe you couldn't, but would yours sell as well in Japan as this one did? Because that was the market they were aiming for, not you. Really? That's interesting. But to be fair, there's plenty of people that have looked at other American creatives and said, hell, I can do that. Yep. (laughs) Like the banana taped to the wall. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying it's, I'm just recognizing that it exists. Yeah. There is this kind of undercurrent of, and it doesn't really matter where you're at, but if you're looking at something that's outside of your culture clash, you could, you, you could actually insultingly just assume that this is something you could just go ahead and do on your own and you'd be just fine. That's true. I, I could definitely see that, but I could also see some of these countries we've watched movies from that are just now starting to, get better and really dive into the cinema looking at American films and going, yeah, I could do that. Oh yeah. No. And I'm guilty of the same bias myself. I'll sit there and watch a Bollywood movie and I can't stand it when they start in on their fourth musical number. (laughs) But I know people who like eat that up with a spoon and they're like, this is great. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's awful. We mentioned romance. You know, there's people that read three, four romance books per week. And these writers, They have, who was that, Philip Dick or whoever used to have the wheel for the Pulp Fiction. He'd turn the wheel and it would tell him, okay, this character in this setting with this mystery and it's going to solve like this. Boom, he had a story. He'd sit down, go, turn it in, turn the wheel, write the next story. It was very templated in that way. And look at the popularity of Hallmark Christmas movies. Yep. It's the exact same thing. They're the same kind of movie just over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. After my father passed, I sold all my Hallmark stock because I knew it was go down after that. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing there too, is I can sit there and talk about how I find those movies to be trash. That being said, my daughter loves them because every year for Christmas, she would go and spend the day with my mother-in-law. And they would be getting ready for Christmas and on the TV in the background would just be these movies. So it actually meant something to her, even though, but. Same thing with us. Maybe we will like the cheesy B-rated horror movies because we would every year watch three or four of them, go down to the store, get a couple and watch. So same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Westerns are like that. Walker is like that with Colin. Yeah. 
Well, they managed to make this movie on a budget just under a hundred thousand dollars, and it's an eighty-three minute film. The Perfect. yeah, the financing came mostly from their own family members. Oh, so they if everybody gives us six hundred dollars, <laughs> yeah, yes, we're back to the battery finance yeah. model. DeBello wrote the famous theme song, which is probably more people can probably hum the theme song than can actually say they've seen the movie because it is literally attack of the killer tomatoes. Yeah. And I think Jeff might've actually had an extra stanza in the book with the lyrics. Cause I was looking at the lyrics when I was had the movie playing. I'm like, Hey, there's more here. Than yeah. I heard. Yeah. The, that theme music was based off of the early Japanese Gojira films and the music for those were almost all composed by a guy named Akira Ifukubi. He was the original composer who did all of those kind of dun, da, 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 very dramatic right. sounding, almost militaristic sound to it. And mm-hmm. you can still hear like the you can still hear echoes of that in modern movie scoring, too. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And then they also had the ones with the child choir angel singing ones when he'd come out of the water and stuff yeah i really would have a hard time i don't know that you would have the imperial march from star wars without the existence of akira fukubi's music in the 60s it definitely like we've said many times before sometimes that music really helps set the mood and makes it that it adds that emotional bit to it yeah the vast majority of the rest of the music and it's so funny because We'll be sitting here talking about movies and be like, oh, yeah, the soundtrack. And I'm like, oh, I don't need I didn't even look up who wrote it. This one I did. The vast majority of the rest of the music in the film was composed by a guy named Gordon Goodwin and Paul Sundefor. And between the two of them, they did all the rest of the soundtrack that you actually hear in the film. Nice. And it's silly, goofy. <laughs> a lot of the like the one the guy breaks into a musical in the middle of the thing with the sales pitch for the stuff he's selling. And Jeff actually put that into the book and expanded it. It's really well done. Yeah. There's a whole bunch. I'm not going to say from any specific movie, but there are a whole bunch. If you look at the Killer Tomatoes franchise, there are a lot of famous people who moved through there. And there's not a ton of them in any one specific movie. But like the second Attack of the Killer Tomatoes stars George Clooney. That's excellent. And it's like one of his first movies. So and this one's not it's not foreign to this film either, because the anti-tomato song, Puberty Love, which makes the tomatoes explode, (laughs) was sung by this teenager named Matt Cameron. And Matt Cameron went on to become the drummer for Soundgarden. Oh. And eventually Pearl Jam went in Pearl Jam in the late nineties. He went on to become a pretty successful musician, you know. That's a great way to start your career. Not necessarily well, known for his voice. <laughs> John Bon Jovi sang on the infamous Star Wars Christmas album. Wow. Yeah. Just yeah. as a chorus part? or Yeah, background. Yeah, I yeah. think it was, uh, what do you get a Wookiee for Christmas if he already has a comb? I think it was that one. Oh, all right. An actual song. The movie opens with one of the best or arguably one of the worst stunts of all time because they had a part that was supposed to happen later in the film 
where a Hillary 12 E helicopter comes down and touches down and then takes off. It was supposed to be dropping off troops, but when the pilot did it, the tail rotor hit the ground, which caused it to spin out of control, roll on its side and catch fire. Right. Now the pilots successfully got away with bumps and scratches and stuff, but they put it at the front of the movie because it's probably the most expensive stunt they did. And yeah, the actual helicopter crash in the start of the film was an actual helicopter crash. Yeah. And that's in the movie. It's even more funny because it's obvious when you look at that, the burning pile of wreckage is not, the, the, there's no helicopter there. That it's one of those, they used it effectively. I'll give them so much credit for that. If you look through this trio's production, they really made the most with their money. It's amazing as we go on. So yeah, we hired this helicopter, no fault of our own. The pilot crashed it. Hey, we've got an amazing opening to our film. Yeah. Because <laughs> the cameras happen to be rolling. I am glad that we're not going to go in depth in the plot here because the pace of this film is frenetic. Yeah. It just is bang. I liken it to, and I didn't, I might've likened it to a mad magazine, but it's more like a cracked magazine where it's here was mad magazine. And then underneath that was cracked. It wasn't quite the same level, but if you were to try and sit there and talk about it, each scene lasts maybe three to five minutes and they change constantly. So that within the first 20, 30 minutes, you're not even exactly sure who the antagonist, who the protagonist of the film is. They never, they never, you never see Godzilla come out of the water. It's like you start in the middle of it with Godzilla stomping on buildings in town. And that's how the movie starts, essentially. Yeah. And every scene, and I thought about this because we mentioned it a bit, instead of every scene having a little transition part where you see people walking or opening a door or something, they're like always immediately in the middle of a sentence sitting down or something like that. They're in the middle of every single scene is in media ray in some way. And it just moves and it's done and over. And you don't get much chance to digest what is going on. Who is what? It's just suddenly tomatoes are attacking. Oh. Yeah. And you're probably 30 to 45 minutes in before you're like, okay, there's the guy who always has a parachute on. He seems to be in a lot of scenes. There's the beleaguered government agent who's been giving a, a giant pile of crap and he's supposed to make it work. Okay, so he seems to be in it pretty frequently. Oh, and then here's the newspaper reporter after an hour who right. starts showing up on a regular basis. Yeah. I, um, I, can't, I asked Jeff about afterwards, hey, you got any tips for doing this type of writing, taking a movie? He says, don't ask me. He's no one probably has ever written a novel based on a movie like this. He's just, I was given free reign. I went at it and he's, I don't really even know how I did it half the time. <laughs> and literally all credit to Jeff Strand. I don't know that they could have picked a better author to do it. Yeah, I agree. Because it really seems like what right up his alley. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I told him, I said, this book had me laughing more than even some of the other ones that I think are hilarious. And that's what I love him for. He does have some serious horror also. He does have some YA fiction and stuff, but it's his comedy horror that is his top. Yeah. What I really love about him. Yeah. Everything has teeth. That anthology book of his that I read, it really did kind of seem to mix it up. And I don't want to say that there was anything too serious in there. But the level of humor varied drastically. 
as you would go through. So you would have some that were like actually vaguely disturbing with kind of the loved ones where it feels humorous and you're, but you're like, I don't know that I should be laughing at this kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Stephen Peace decided when he looked at it all, he's, you know what? If I take a leading role and I play it myself, we'll save tons of money. (laughs) So he is the guy who's the parachute guy. Okay. And he decided to play that all by himself. Other than him, the film has three other actors who did go on to actually have further film career. Any tomatoes. Besides any tomatoes. Because a lot of the tomatoes were harmed in the filming of this movie. (laughs) And it kind of soured them to the industry. They were like, I'm not going back. Yeah, that's why they had to get the, the, the people for the Ewoks. They couldn't use the tomatoes anymore. That's right. Eric Christmas was in it. He is a British actor in the movie. He plays one of the, he plays the Senator who runs the Senate subcommittee meetings when they're not sitting there asleep or drooling on themselves. The world lost Eric Christmas around 2000. He passed away. He had been involved in 134 projects. The first five of which were released in 1939. Wow. They were television programs for, in Great Britain. So it's nothing that you and I are going to know. But if you look at television, he had been in tons of television shows, just little spot things like Bonanza, Columbo, Kojak, Cheers, Night Court, X-Files, Seinfeld. He had a long run as a priest on Days of Our Lives. Okay. But if you look at the films he was in, he had bit parts in The Andromeda Strain. And in Johnny Got His Gun. Oh, interesting. And The Changeling. Big fan of that movie. That was the movie that he was in right after Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, actually. He went from this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But he's also pretty well known from Porky's and Porky's 2. I believe he was the judge. Oh, okay. In Porky's and Porky's 2. And he was in Naked Gun 33 and a third. And Air Bud. He wasn't winning any Oscars for any of the films he was in, but he was a working actor clear up until he passed away until in the year 2000. Yeah, nice. I'm sure his career skyrocketed after Tomatoes. He went straight from there to The Changeling, which is, (laughs) yeah. Jack Riley was in it, and he was only in it for a bit. In fact, when he showed up on screen at first, I was like, you're kidding me. They actually afforded, they could afford to get Jack Riley in here because he had been working quite a bit back then too. No, don't worry for their budget because they only had him in about three scenes because they could only afford him for so long. He was the police officer. In the end, I think his car, he and his partner in his car, and they just get pelted with tomatoes and crash your car. Yeah. The nice thing for us about Jack Riley, he's born in Cleveland. He's Cleveland born connection to tomatoes. We did have a connection to the tomatoes. He died in 2016. It's still a connection. And you know him when you see him, you know him because you're like, Oh, I've seen this sarcastic son of a bitch in so many different things. And that he excelled at playing this deadpan, dry humor, sarcastic character. Um, He had been on 181 different projects And he did tons of voiceover work towards the end of his life, the end of the 90s, because he was the voice of Stu Pickles in the Rugrats. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. On regular television, he showed up in Gomer Pyle, The Flying Nun, I Dream of Jeannie, Hogan's Heroes, 
MASH, Mary Tyler Moore, Happy Days. He had a long run on the Bob Newhart show. He was, I think he was like the neighbor, the kind of quirky. Yeah. 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 You'll recognize him. He was in Barney Miller and Fantasy Island, Simon, Simon, blah, blah, blah. Tons and tons of movies, TV shows. As far as films go, he was in Catch-22. And there were actually two of them, I didn't realize. There was one like way back in the 60s. And then another one was done towards the end of the 70s, I think. Hmm. He was in both of them. Wow. Uh, History? No, I don't think so. That's interesting. I get to be in both of them, but different parts. Yeah. Wednesday just did that. The bad guy in Wednesday was Wednesday in the 90s. Right. Yeah. History of the World Part 1, which really sounds like the kind of thing this guy would be in. He was also in Volume 2. I love how they do that, too. History of the World Part 1. History of the World Volume (laughs) 2. That's probably part of the humor there, too. Yeah. He was in Spaceballs. Chud 2, Bud the Chud. And he was in Boogie Nights. The last guy who was in there, he plays a little boy, I think, the little boy at the pond, at the lake oh, when okay, they're yeah, swimming yeah. and they get attacked by the tomatoes, something yeah. reminiscent of Creepshow or something. He's Dana Ashbrook, and he's an American movie. This was his first movie. He went on to do a lot of television, his longest runs being in Twin Peaks, both runs of Twin Peaks, Dawson's Creek, and Crash. So... He was like the handsome pretty boy who shows up in a lot of those kind of shows. He was also involved with a couple movies, Return of the Living Dead 2, both Twin Peaks movies. And he's actually got one project in the pipe right now called Unplugged. Oh, yeah. still working. And when it comes out, you want to see what Dana Ashbrook's up to? Go see that film. There you go. <laughs> I find it really interesting that the movie starts with just tomatoes. So... Yeah. No expense, just buying tomatoes. Over time, they actually worked with people who taught them how to use foam to cast tomatoes and spray paint them. So once they learned how to do it, you started to get various sized tomatoes and they weren't all just regular tomatoes. Now they were foam cast tomatoes, culminating in like a tomato. It was probably about six foot in diameter. So it's hard to say for sure. Yeah. But all of their props were made with super cheap stuff, like the tomatoes put on ear protection to guard against the song. The ear protection were green toilet seat covers <laughs> with a green strap holding them in place on top of the tomatoes. So, oh, well, you know, that's again, it may not have been the highest budget, but having the struggle to make that stuff work adds to the humor a, a whole lot. It's just those little things. Absolutely. And they continued, if you are ever looking for production people, honestly, you should give these guys a call. Because, like, all of the army uniforms that were used in the movie, and there are quite a few, they just scoured Goodwills throughout the area and bought them all from Goodwill. Nice. So all these guys are wearing these army uniforms. They just got them for, what, a nickel a pop or something like that back in the 70s in a Goodwill? Right. And they also did stuff like they didn't get permits to film. Oh, another one of those. We've had a few of those. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems like the only one that people ever actually mention when they talk about it was the fountain scene. You have the guy in the scuba gear who's been walking through the desert for pretty much the whole movie. He comes to a fountain and he just starts swimming in the fountain. 
they didn't have a permit for that. The guy just starts walking and everyone's looking at him weird, just like they would in the movie. <laughs> he gets in the fountain and he paddles around in the fountain and then they cut. The amount of money they saved in that is pretty astronomical. Uh, yeah, as long as they didn't get caught and then have court fines and all yeah. sorts of stuff. So we're, yeah, yeah, we, we hope actually, that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, we're good on that. They filmed at Dodger State, not Dodger Stadium. It's in San Diego. That's where it was supposed to be. Yeah. So they were filming there and all of the extras there, they just put out a call for all of the weirdos in the San Diego area who wanted to be in a movie. And that's where all those people came from. They just answered this catacall. They turned no one away, just crammed them in there and said, here's what's happening. Go. And so all that you see there is the creation of the people that they were working with. Oh, that is, it makes it even better because it's a very chaotic scene with everybody running and all that. And the very last part, there's 50 people gathered together. I'm like, that's all of the city. Yeah. It almost makes it worthwhile to watch the scene again, just to watch what the people came up with when someone said <laughs> action. It, it, that's like the early version of today's walking dead zombies. Yeah. <laughs> Romero had that with Night of the Living Dead too, right? He had these people who said, okay, I want you to walk around with your dead. And he just started filming stuff. And he's, if I put stuff out here, would you guys actually bite it? And they're like, sure. And so he's throwing out cat, raw cow liver. And they're like, yeah. And they're pulling on it with their teeth. And he was like, I was amazed at what the people were willing to do. <laughs> yeah, but it was a, almost like a college thing. Yeah. When you're in college, yeah, you'll do any stupid shit. The film was, and to this day is, pretty universally panned by critics. <laughs> Not by us, though. No. It did go on to become a cult classic all on its own against all of the, and I think it has to do with a lot of the midnight showing kind of places yeah. where you'd be showing Rocky Horror Picture Show. In fact, it gets mentioned it would be paired with Rocky Horror Picture Show. People would come out to see Rocky Horror Picture Show and then stick around and watch this afterwards. So it's, I don't want to say it's the same crowd, but it's the same kind of mentality. The big difference being Rocky Horror Picture Show, they took it a step further and directly interacted with the film yes. with the cast out parts. Yeah. Um, but it became a cult classic. It actually made three sequels. There were three sequels. I think one was, the first one was like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes 2. The second one was like Killer Tomatoes Eat New York. And then one was They Attacked Paris. Of so there were, Yeah. There were three of them. There was a cartoon series. Yeah. And I think that was Fox who Fox decided they were going to do one. And it lasted, I think a season, maybe two I before it, it got two. canceled and all kinds of video games yeah. have been produced from back in the day when you and I used to sit around and pirate video games, you'd come across this. <laughs> and there was a comic book adaptation by Viper comics. Yeah. And now a novelization. And now a novelization. So it is one of those kind of cases where you just have something that you have three guys who sat around and said, I think we could do better. And if you compare this with the original raw material that they were looking at, they did. Because regardless of how well it did financially or anything like that, you look at the cultural impact. This movie came out in 78. So it's what? 30 years old, 40 30 now. plus, almost 40 years old. And yeah. you know, we're still here talking about it. People are still making stuff about it. So it's very, it's a very impressive feat that they accomplished. Yeah. And it's one of those lightning in a bottle things. Yeah. They, I know that's 
what they wanted to do, but you can't really plan that at times. You can't plan a cultural phenomenon oh, no. that everyone wants to watch underground and all that. I think Costa Dillon was, I was watching an interview with him and he was talking, he was walking down the street and this guy came up and he's like, Hey, you're Costa Dillon, right? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, you made Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, right? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, you made me a million dollars. Because the guy had the distribution rights for, he had the distribution rights for Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he found he could actually charge more if he paired something up with it. And this movie was so cheap for distribution <laughs> that he tagged it to the end he could charge one and a half times the cost of the ticket. And over the years, people just kept coming and he just made tons of money off of it. And Dakota and Dylan's, he made more money off of it than I did. <laughs> I love that story. That's pretty good. <laughs> Here's hoping Jeff Strand makes good money off this book. Yeah, certainly. Anybody who's willing to take on this learning and Hydra and tame it down deserves something. Yeah. Yeah. I know I watched the movie with a friend that it's, this isn't their bread and butter movie watching. Yeah. They're like, what are we watching? Are you serious? What is this? Sometimes these type of movies, the B movies, the cult movies, you got to get it. You either get it or you don't. You've said several times when we sat there and we talked about martyrs or the loved ones, you're like, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to everyone. (laughs) I would say the same about this, but from a different side of the coin. It's not that this is going to be too disturbing or anyone's going to be too upset by watching it. They just might literally be sitting there going, what the hell did we just spend 83 minutes doing? I don't get it. Where'd my life go? Why did I waste it on this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cool, man. All right. There's Killer Tomatoes. And we're going to just shove this in here. Link over to Jeff's book. It's a bonus episode in the middle of season four. Awesome. Plenty of season four still to come. Cool. So this is a special episode. It's not even one of our bonus episodes, Reese. This is just a special episode. It'll take the place, uh, the highest place of honor amongst all our episodes. So it's uh, a crossover event. It is. We're going to do this with Discovered Wordsmith also. So, Jeff, you get to be on my other podcast twice. You're one of the lucky handful. Before we get rolling, everybody knows me and Reese, all four people in Remotion that listen to us. Hello. So, first of all, we've got a guest, Jeff Strand. So, Jeff, tell everybody a little bit about who you are, and then we can start making fun of you. I'm a writer. I have written a little over 50 books. My most recent one was... The Killer Tomatoes, the novelization, which I assume will come up at some point during this discussion. Oh, we probably should have thought I've done some young adult comedy pretty much all over the place, but mostly horror comedies where I'm at. And I know I've mentioned you to Reese and others a couple times that I just fell in love with your books. And I, I texted you the other day. I said, oh, my God, I'm reading Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and it's your best one. I am out loud laughing, and I'm reading it to my son, just bits and pieces, and he's laughing just listening to the little bits I put. We want to talk a little bit about the movie and the novelization a bit. My first question, Reese, oh, you had a couple questions, background. I did, actually. Jeff, this is the first time I've met you. And aside from a friend of ours who we know who left a long time ago, to go live in Alaska. Alaska is one of the three places that I've told my children I should never go because I'll probably never come home from. 
So I'm going to ask you to disabuse me of my romantic notions of what Alaska is. So what was it like growing up in the Great White North? I didn't know any different. So I, I was born in Baltimore, but I grew up in Alaska from six months old till 15. So didn't know any different. So the fact that it is light 24-7 during the summer was not weird to me. That's just the way it is. The fact that it gets, I would get on the bus to go to school and be pitch black. And then by the time I got on the bus to come home from school, pitch black. There are a little bit of daylight in the middle. So the long nights during the winter, the long days during the summer, that was just the way things were. So people would visit in the summer and like, how can you sleep? It's four in the morning and it is bright out. And yeah, but that, no, that stuff was weird to me. What was what I realized was the most weird and didn't impact me at all growing up was in Fairbanks, you were in Fairbanks. Like right now I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I think nothing of, I'll drive to Nashville. Tomorrow I'm going to go to Atlanta, Knoxville. The whole continental United States is at my disposal without it being that big of a trip. Whereas in Fairbanks, Fairbanks was the only place I was unless we took a vacation to Anchorage, which was like six or eight hours. <laughs> so there were tiny little towns that were basically a gas station and maybe a restaurant. But for the most part, I, if you were a resident of Fairbanks, that's where you spent all your time because there weren't other cities that you could just drive to on a casual basis. Nowhere else to go. Yeah. <laughs> I talked to a lot of Canadian authors and it's the same thing. They're like, yeah, I've got a favorite bookstore. It's three and a half hours north of me. I'm like, do you have anything closer? No, that's like the closest. And I thought it was bad here driving eight miles to get to the grocery store. Yeah. So, Fairbanks had everything, but had a movie theater, had bookstores, it had restaurants and stuff, but you just, there was nothing beyond the boundaries of it. Yeah. I know we go a little south here into Amish country and there's lots of places that have horse and buggy set up. So did they actually have like dog sled setups that people drive to? the movie theaters to see the movies no you had dog sleds that were people training for the iditarod race but you didn't have people who were dog sledding as a means of transportation oh you, there you go see my my fantasies are gone they're, I, they're dashed on the rocks yeah. this was fairbanks which is the second biggest city if you're in anchorage it's basically like any other big city fairbanks yeah. was quite a bit smaller but yeah you didn't have the Mush, let's go to the movies. Type thing. The Riker from Star Trek was from Fairbanks, so good company. <laughs> and he did live in Kent for a while, which is one of the reasons I went, when after I read his the one book, Cyclops Road, I went, oh my God, this guy like was in Kent about the same time I was living in this area. And we're like two days apart. Maurice, you call me old man because we're like five months apart. Jeff is actually two days older than me. I'm not the oldest anymore look at that new senior man in the room yeah look at that all right so first of all the movie itself now i know a lot of people probably haven't seen the movie which is good that's what we want we want movies like that it is not your typical horror movie especially for what reese and i do it's comedy jeff how would you describe the movie and what you enjoy it with it it's just, it's as silly as you would think from Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's weird seeing stuff saying, it's one of the worst movies ever made where they don't acknowledge that it's a comedy. It's not a straightforward movie about killer tomatoes. It wasn't some guy saying, we're going to make the scariest movie ever about killer tomatoes. It's a goofy comedy from beginning to end. It's just joke. Not every joke lands, but a lot of them really do. Even 45 years later, there's lots of genuinely funny stuff in the movie. And it. Some of the jokes are overplayed. Some of the, you know, it's not a flawless masterpiece of cinematic 
comedy, but it really works. I think I love the movie. I think it's really entertaining and fun. Absolutely agree. If you like airplane movies, there's probably a lot in this you'll like. But the funny thing is, I like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, but I'm not as big on airplane. I I never. I love airplane too. So airplane, Naked Gun, all those movies, they're all in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm weird. I know. My son tells me I'm a weirdo for not liking them. And I'm like, I don't know. When I saw them, I guess I didn't find them funny. So it just stuck. But I have to agree with your son here. (laughs) (laughs) Like you said, with Killer Tomatoes, it's got some things in it that are very subtle. And you have to really pay attention sometimes to pick up on them. There's a few jokes that are a little outdated, let's say, nowadays. It probably would get people upset. But stupid little things like they go into that conference room and it's so narrow they have to crawl across the table. But they don't make a big show of it other than if you think about it. Or when the Japanese guy hits the picture and it's the Arizona and it falls in a fish tank. And the funniest part for that for me is there's no fish tank in the room. So where did that fall into the fish tank? It's little things like that I think are great. Yeah, the conference room is great because it doesn't overplay it's not like wacky music like wah, 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 nah, 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 nah. it's just people trying to retain their dignity while they get seated in a room that's way too small for them would you like Reese? i mentioned to steve just before we started i liken it almost to mad magazine because it it moves so quickly between one joke to the next in the scenes so you're probably 30 to 40 minutes into the film before you actually have any recognizable recurring characters because everything is just happening so fast. And then they do the same kind of like mad magazine used to do with, they'd have little jokes that would be running across the bottom, like a ticker tape kind of thing. And you're like, where'd that come from? So that's one of the things airplane and those kind of movies are almost a genre unto themselves, but this feels like something that's a little set outside because, and I've mentioned it before with movies, they have a literary feel, and this does feel like I'm opening a new issue of Cracked Magazine whenever I'm watching this. Mad Magazine was superior, though. It was. Just throw some love to the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So... Watching the movie, Jeff, and I've read the book, watched the movie now. I told Reese I owe him a copy of the book because it's just pretty fantastic. He'll love it. How did you come about and get this? Okay, first of all, if anybody hasn't read the book, we're trying not to get Jeff arrested, so we won't mention him killing Mr. Tomato Book Writer. But that right there made me laugh. That was the prelude, and you just flowed right in with the feel of the whole movie, and then each scene you expanded on. So let's back up. How did you get the gig? Why did you want to do it? And what took so long? This is a 40-year-old movie. Part of it was just, it would be a really fun book to adapt. <laughs> because the book, the movie is just all jokes. I'd love to do an adaptation of Airplane, too. They'll never let me do it, but that would be. <laughs> so what really happened was I was thinking of what to tweet, what will amuse my Twitter followers. And so I said, how is it possible that no one is invited me to do a Attack of the Killer Tomatoes novelization. Not, it was not meant to be a legitimate solicitation of work. It was just something funny to tweet. And then Mark Miller at Encyclopocalypse Books sent me a private email and said, hey, if you're serious about that, I'll see what I can make happen. Yeah. And then within a few weeks, I was on a Zoom call with the filmmakers who were all in. My resume is pretty good for someone to write an Attack of the Killer Tomato. It's not, oh man, let's take a shot on this guy who has no experience in that particular genre. It's like, when it was announced, people were like, yeah, 
Jeff Strand, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> if it was Jeff Strand doing Casablanca, wait, what? But Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is something that I can pull off. Basically, they, the only request they had was keep it as family-friendly as the movies. The movie, it's a it's PG, but it's 1978 PG, so it'd be a right. fairly strong PG-13 now. I'll check for that, which is what I would have done anyway. And I basically pitched it as I'm going to treat it like you guys had Marvel Cinematic Universe money to make the original movie. And so they were all in, and I was set free to write Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Did they have any any handcuffs as far as like lore goes or anything like that you had to follow? Or were you... Because the movie's very short on where they came from or anything like that. There's not a lot of backstory to it. It just jumps right in. And they developed it more in the later films. But again, some of those weren't the exact same people. So I wondered if they were like, hey, you need to stick to this and you can move from there and go forward, but start here. No, there was nothing. And I treat it as a wow. self-contained. Because original, my original thought was I'm going to weave in elements of all the movies and the cartoon series and all that. And I thought, no, because if this is successful, if someone else wants to do Return of the Killer Tomatoes, I don't want to step on their toes. So there are no George Clooney jokes. There are no Professor Gangrene isn't in it. I basically I decided I would stick exclusively to the first movie and not mess with what other people might want to do if there is a future of more Attack of the Killer Tomatoes novels. But yeah, they, there was no, you need, these characters need to be in it. You need to stick to this. It wasn't, I did a short story that never got published for a major video game franchise and they were very strict. Yeah. Well, these characters need to be handled this way. What happened ultimately was that the story went to their lore person who said, that's not really the direction we want to take with this character. And I got paid in full, but they didn't use the story. Yeah, it told, you know, it's not like that. It was have fun. We trust you. They read it. So it wasn't like they ha- they have read the book. They love it. Oh, that's good. No, you know, no handcuffs. No stick to this. Just have fun. Which is good because, like I said, I read it and I was laughing. And I love your books, and this one just made me laugh even more than normal. So just. You had a structure, but you were able to do what you wanted with it. I think it worked really well. But the weird thing to me was, why choose a movie novelization now? Because they're not that popular. They used to be way more popular, but nobody sees too much, especially for a low-budget movie from 40 years ago. It's a super interesting choice because it fits us well. And the fact that we're talking about this low-budget movie that had sequels, Reese, I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. So why I know it was like, hey, let's make this happen. Why do you think they wanted to do it? And Psychopocalypse has done some vintage novelizations. So they brought back some that were written at the time, but they've also gone back and done Creature and stuff like that. And they've announced a few more. They're doing Nailgun Massacre and Dead Girl and Redneck Zombies. So they're... There's a little bit of a niche market. We don't know how big it is. It's too early to gauge the success level of stuff like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. But really, it was just a fun thing. It's I think you need to pick movies that people can see the novelization potential in. Like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, it's, it's going to be a really dumb book. It's just goofy, fun. It's not meant to be a literal page. It doesn't 
follow the previous trend in novelizations, which were you have seen the movie in the theater. You're never going to see it again unless it goes into a second run, but you've got the novelization. So you can relive the story of E.T., the extraterrestrial, whenever you want in book form. Whereas now it's just you have to bring something more to it. So it's not meant to just be a transcript of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's basically all new jokes, unless I took their joke and use it to springboard to something else, because the jokes in the movie are perfectly good. My job was not to retell stuff that already works in the movie. My job was to take the framework of the movie and expand on it and do all new jokes. And even there, though, the two I thought of reading it, the one with the bad Japanese overdub with the guy's lips moving and then you hear a voice say, and then I said, and that cracked me up because obviously the Godzilla movies and everything else. But then the musical number, I don't know if I've ever read such a great retelling of a musical number in a novel format. And you did that great, expanded that scene wonderful. So I think you broke new ground. You pioneered a new modern modern novelization of a movie because the stuff makes you laugh in the movie if you have twisted minds like some of us. But again, the book just expanded on all of that, making it even funnier, I think. Yeah. What I wanted it to be, the best way to read the book, you could read it without any prior tomatoes experience the best way to do it is to have freshly seen the movie because a lot of it is callbacks to the film so the optimal way to experience it you watch the movie and then you go right into the book and then i think it there's a lot of stuff that works even better in that context but yeah the point again it's not to you can watch attack of the killer tomatoes whenever you want it's on streaming you can get the multiple dvds there's the big collector's edition it's very easily accessible so what i wanted to do was give the book its own identity it works as a separate but it's completely linked to it it's not i love attack of the killer Tomatoes. this wasn't me being better than the movie this was having fun with various aspects of it and trying to get very similar tone with a completely different experience With the frenetic pacing of the film, was that at all of a challenge when you were writing it? I would think it would be hard to get into a groove and pound a bunch of pages out because the movie shifts gears so quickly from scene to scene to scene. Not really, because I've got experience in it. There's a reason I was the right guy to write this book. So I've done my adult horror comedy novels. I try to treat the horror legitimately, but have lots of laughs. But I've done young adult books that are just joke. So I've done book it's not if you read attack of the killer tomatoes and then you read my book a bad day for voodoo there's you can see there's still the meta element and so i've i have done books that are just pure comedies all the way through so it wasn't like okay how am i going to tackle this i have that love experience it's hard it's not oh yeah i could just easily knock this it's uh it was a fun book to write it is when you are doing something that is just joke after joke and you're not letting the characters or the story carry you through because i'm I'll be honest, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, the novelization, you're not going to get deeply invested in these characters. I don't care if it's funny or not. I just I need to know what's going to happen to this guy. That's not the experience you're going to get with it. And it's, it's not a scary book. It's just as funny as I could possibly make it. So, yeah, you do need to keep the pacing up. You, it yeah. creates a scenario like, like the movie Airplane, like the movie Naked Gun, like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. You can't let up on the laughs because the book doesn't have the framework to allow you to say, yeah, let's just cool down for a couple pages. No, it has to be nonstop throughout, which is not for everyone, but the people who love it. 
which actually you even, you do a lot of fourth wall breaking in the book and you even reference that. Okay, Mr. Author, now maybe we should slow this chapter down and not put so many jokes. So the joke was the not doing so many jokes, which I thought was pretty, pretty brilliant. And Reese, so we talk a lot about the special effects in movies and the special effects in this one obviously is not computer graphics. They do it wonderfully though, because they don't try and make all these big, scary looking tomatoes. They just take like garden tomatoes and put them on the ground and overdub it with Yeah. What, what are thoughts on the special effects? I know a lot of people would say this movie sucks, like you said, because the special effects suck, but I think the special effects are part of the comedy. The movie starts off with one of arguably the greatest special effects in all of cinematography when they accidentally crashed the helicopter that they hired for the scene. And then they're like, oh, hey, let's just use that in the movie. You don't get much more authentic than that. After that, the special effects they use ramp up because it starts with just tomatoes and then it progresses from just tomatoes. There's some stop animation at tomatoes. Yeah. And then towards the end of the film, they figured out how to make giant tomatoes out of foam and put them on wheeled carts. So, you know, it slowly built up over time. But again, it's not. You've referenced before, Steve, in movies where they try to show too much of the bad guy and it ruins it and in this case even though they're being silly they're still being very prudent with the usage of the giant tomatoes and things like that so i think it works really well especially for the film the way it's the way it's set up yes agreed jeff i know some of reese's favorite movies like all 1200 of them what are some of your other favorite horror movies Shaun of the Dead is my favorite horror movie and favorite movie. So it works brilliantly as a comedy and brilliantly as a horror movie. So it's not like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. That in Shaun of the Dead, it's really funny, but you're also fully invested in the characters. When things get serious, there are actual stakes. So that's my number. I'll swing over to my poster. And then Return of the Living Dead, one of my all-time favorites. That one... I think to me, that's the 80s horror movie that holds up the best. I think it still plays just as well now, even though a lot of the stuff that they originated is now zombie lore. It's got the fast zombies, that Return of the Living Dead. That wasn't 28 Days Later. That was Return of the Living Dead. The fact that they a hit to the brain won't kill them, that you have to dismember them. The fact that they the meta aspect, the fact that this is based... Night of the Living Dead was just a movie, so the character is referring to... Night of the Living Dead. So it's got all kinds of talking zombies. It's got all kinds of stuff that was done later, but it does it all in one movie. So that's one of my all-time favorites. I love the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's probably my favorite just straight horror movie. Although that has lots of dark comedy too. It's got the funniest line of any movie of look what your brother did to the door. That one line is the most perfect comic relief line ever because it's completely logical in a in a movie where suddenly logic shouldn't apply right so it's like you've got this guy wearing human skin chainsawing a door and of course you're going to be upset that this guy chainsawed your door but in the context of the movie you don't think they care about their door so then to have look what your brother did to the door just suddenly takes you back to the reality of the situation is absolutely brilliant so original texas chainsaw massacre and then there's as for more obscure stuff that maybe not a lot of people have seen may 
one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, that's uh, a good one. Lucky McKee with Angela Bettis. That I saw that at a film festival, and it rocketed to the all-time favorites. And there's a lower, much, much, much lower budget movie called Found, which is just one of the darkest and most I don't know that one. disturbing things. That's something good you should definitely check it out. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to look it up. Yeah, Reese always makes notes of any he hasn't seen, and then we'll watch movies and reference. Here's 20 other similar ones. Jeff, have you seen Todd in the Book of Pure Evil? I have not. I've heard it's really good. It, yeah. Oh, you would enjoy it. <laughs> we enjoyed watching We reviewed it, enjoyed it. And another one that comes to mind, Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. I hadn't. I Phantom of the Paradise is something I'd been wanting to see for a really long time, and Back when I first saw the documentary Tear in the Isles, they had a clip from it. And it's where he hits, I think, Garrett Graham in the mouth with the toilet plunger. <laughs> and I'm like, I have to see this movie, but I didn't know what movie it was. And they didn't, the documentary didn't identify the clips. So I would watch the end credits. They had the long list of all the clips. Like, I don't know which one it is. I don't know which one it is because I haven't seen all these movies. So I finally discovered that it was Phantom of the Paradise, but I could never find it on video. I finally saw it about three years ago in the actual movie theater. They, wow. The theater <laughs> in Atlanta played it. So I went. So my first experience with Phantom of the Paradise was seeing it on the big screen with a big crowd. And it was wonderful. It As it was meant to be. Not in our basement in the dark. <laughs> yeah. Like most of the bad horror movies we've watched through the years. Yeah. So what else you got, Reese? I know you had a whole list. I've jumped in. Oh, no. you. We've covered a lot of it. I. Yeah. You had gone to Bowling Green for school. And while you were in Bowling Green, did you ever go see Mary Box Fingers? I did not. I'm not sure what that is. There is there's a small museum, for lack of a better word, and they had a display of the last public ex execution in Bowling Green, and it was a farmer who, in a mad rage, butchered his wife, basically. And when the sheriff showed up, he put three of her fingers in a jar full of whiskey to use as evidence in the case. And those fingers have lasted this entire time. They're still in a jar on display in this museum, along with the hangman's rope and the knife he used and tickets for the hanging. But it seemed macabre and bizarre enough. I wondered if it was something that you had seen while you were there. No, I spent too much time in movie theaters and bookstores. I missed out on the fingers. Well, and I did. Yeah, I'm building it up, but it really is. You walk in, you're like, yep, they're there, and then you're gone. But, yeah, but really, how many people can you go up to and say, have you seen Mary Box Fingers? Oh, yeah, I've been there. You get, no, what's that? Let me tell you. It's on the presentation <laughs> it's of true. doing something that they haven't done. I love doing that. <laughs> yeah. I also had noticed that your first publication was in a literary magazine, and my brother and my dad back in the 70s were big into getting Isaac Asimov and Astonishing Tales delivered to the house. So they had subscriptions. And I wonder if you think that society is at a loss now that literary magazines seem to be a thing of the past. Yeah, it's not as much fun. I use Cemetery Dance. It's published very infrequently now. It's still a print magazine. I got the latest issue 
couple weeks ago. But yeah, I used to get tons of them. I would go to the bookstore and there'd just be a whole rack of horror fiction magazines and I would read a lot of new stuff that way. Now I really don't. Now I either read anthologies or just novels. So yeah, it's it was more fun to... I wasn't getting published regularly back in those days, so I would get lots of rejections. So I have, I don't have a big stack of literary magazines I've been in. I have a big stack of rejections <laughs> magazines. Yeah. It's still, it's more fun to see your story in an actual printed magazine. But it's yeah, like so. the, the fake money drop off. You take all your rejections, put them in between the two magazines you've been in. And so it looks like you have a huge pile of these literary magazines. Oh, there goes Reese again. <laughs> He'll be back, I'm sure. <laughs> We'll just keep going and we'll pretend he's a ghost. We're doing so well. Um, So, Jeff, for people listening, we asked you a little bit about yourself. What books would you recommend that someone start with? I discovered Cyclops Road because I got a free copy. I've told you that. Oh, look, a free horror movie or book. I'll take it. So what books do you recommend? Of my own, generally, I would interrogate them. Okay, do you want the goofier stuff or do you want the more serious stuff? In the absence of any information, I generally go with Wolf Hunt, which is a super violent comedy horror crime werewolf book. So that's like my default. I also sometimes will say Autumn Bleeds Into Winter, which is a coming of age thriller, or Allison, which is a telekinetic horror thriller. Lots of humor in all those. So I don't. Weller is one of my most popular books, but it's also sort of an outlier because it's very sad and i don't generally do bummer books but dwellers bummer books so that probably is my most the most popular thing i've ever written with readers but it's not necessarily my starting place and stuff like pressure again that was one of my most popular ones but it's also very dark and intense and so if you're like okay what best exemplifies what a jeff strand book is and i'm all over the place but i generally would say okay wolf hunt allison or autumn bleeds in the winter I haven't read Allison or Autumn Bleeds. I did pick up Allison when I saw you. But Wolf Hunt and Forbidden Forest and Blister, I like those. Forbidden Forest and Wolf Hunt, I've got those on audio, and I've listened to them a couple times. Oh, cool. Because they're good, fun to listen to. It They crack me up still. And it's also at the Scares That Care, which you were recently at when I saw you. Armin Shimmerman was there, and he wrote some what I call fan fiction alternative Shakespeare history. And those are much heavier to read. And I even commented, I said, yeah, I liked reading the first one. I said, but it, it takes so much brain power to read it. I said, I need to get something, you know, that a little more fun and easier to read. And your stuff has fit that perfectly. Plus then I've gone back multiple times. So for everybody listening, you got a favorite movie, horror movie that we've done. You watch, great. Here's some favorite horror books to add to that collection. Everything's Got Teeth is the Jeff Strand book that I own. You actually have one. Yeah. I didn't know that. When you first brought him up, this is what I was saying about literary magazines. They're so nice because you can read authors, several authors you've never heard of all in one compilation, but you brought Jeff up to me and I was like, oh, I'll check it out. And so I just picked that up and I enjoyed it a lot. I like anthologies in general, but. Thank you. What's. You've got some other great titles like Dead Clown Barbecue, which I've got digitally, haven't read yet. Was that one of the Mayhem books or not? Or is that an no, Dead Clown Barbecue is a short story collection. Okay. I've got five, five of my books are just 
collections of short stories. It's Gleefully Macabre Tales, Dead Clown Barbecue, Everything Has Teeth, Candy Coated Madness, and Freaky Briefs. And the others are not novels. Okay. And then one nonfiction book, The Writing Life. Which, again, for all the writers, if I put this up on my writer thing, I, is my, I have two writer books that are go-tos that I have both read both of them a couple times. And one was Stephen King's on writing. Yeah, it's a good I think one. his beginning autobiography part is just great read to listen to. It's not dry or anything. And then the advice, yeah, that's okay. But then the other one is your writing life because it's so personal and down to earth and makes me laugh while also making me feel better. It's, yeah, I had a really crappy day. I feel like the worst writer in the world. I'll read some Jeff Stram because he'll make me feel a little better about my life. And it actually has. So That's what it's supposed to be. It's not a book about here's how to write the perfect query letter or here's how to create characters that, you know, come to life. It's meant to be, here's what it's like if you do a book signing and no one shows up. And here's how to cope with rejection. It's kind of like the real stuff about being a working writer who is not making $100 million a year. Which I absolutely love because that's why I started the podcast because I was tired of going into all those Facebook groups of people going, Hey, look at the hundred thousand I made this month on the three yeah. books I've written. And I'm going, I can't relate to that. And I'm looking around going, there's 50,000 people here. You can't tell me 50,000 authors can relate to that. And that yep. was the genesis of the podcast. All right. What you got anything else to add to this conversation, Reese? before we let um, Jeff go? Just really quickly, and if you can't say anything, it's fine, but during some of our research for, I don't remember which movie it was, one of the ones recently, we came across that somebody was working on a movie called Blister. And at the time, I think Steve had asked if I knew who that was by, and I said, I have no idea at all. And so we're wondering if you had anything to do with a movie option. I do not. I have lots of movie stuff going on. Like there's actually really cool stuff happening at this very moment that I'm not allowed to talk about, but Blister is not one of them. So that would be okay. Blister. Blister, it's really, it's one of my best-selling novels, but the movie interest has been almost non-existent. So I've got lots of cool stuff going on, but yeah, if, if there's a movie being made of Blister, they've either done it without telling me or it's someone else. <laughs> Blister is an interesting book of yours, too, because it's not super dark, but it's also not super funny. But it definitely is that just because someone doesn't look like you, watch how you treat them. Yeah. Now, well, leading up to the question, I was ready to say yes, but I can confirm nothing. But uh, <laughs> sorry. Just, not me. <laughs> no, it's it's funny because a lot of the movies that we review are either early in someone's career or the people never really took off and became huge directors or anything like that. So a lot of times you'll hear about projects they're working on and they will never, ever see the light of day. And I thought it would be, if you could actually confirm that it was something you'd been involved with, maybe it had a better chance of being done. No, I can officially deny. Excellent. Hopefully this will be outdated and the blister will have been this massive success. Oh, well, he was lying. <laughs> no, I'm not involved in a blister movie with this. Well, as soon as a big one comes out, We'll review it and right. we'll do a yeah. link between this one. And then we'll get you back on to tease you about it. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> That's how we work. All right, Jeff. I appreciate you taking some time chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank uh, you. We'll let you know when the episode goes live. You can hear about all the background stuff that we discovered and then tell us about the things we didn't know. All right. Thanks, sir. Thank you. See you guys.
You have been listening to Horror Lasagna. To see all of our seasons and listen to all of the movie reviews with all the themes for each season, check out HorrorLasagna.com. And if you like the podcast, like the movies and reviews, please give us a like, share with a friend, subscribe to our Facebook page, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, pass it along, let people know, tell us, hey, I liked it, that was a good movie, thank you. We would appreciate it. The creature slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again.